0: a meeting of a committee of a national assembly for official purposes only. In addition to the rules of virtual sittings, the rules of the national assembly, including the rules of debate apply. Members enjoy the same powers and privileges that apply in a sitting of a national assembly. Members should equally note that anything said in the virtual platform is deemed to have been said in the house and may be ruled upon. All members who have logged in shall be considered to be present and are requested to mute their microphones and only unmute when recognized to speak. This is because the microphones are very sensitive and will pick up noise which might disturb the attention of other members. When recognized to speak, please unmute your microphone and connect your video. Members may make use of the icons on the bar at the bottom of their screens which is an option Recording that. Recording
1: allows... in progress.
0: Oh, God. Uh, members may make use of the icons at the bar of the bottom of their screens, which is an option that allows a member to put up his or her hand to raise points of order. The secretary will assist in alerting the chairperson to the members requesting to speak. When using the virtual system, members are urged to refrain or desist from unnecessary points of order or interjections. We shall now proceed with the business of the day. And I would like the secretary to just flight the agenda of our meeting for today. (laughs) Yes. Uh, if you could then just uh, make it uh, big. Uh, some of us are struggling to check. Uh, having done item one, two, three, four, we are now on item number five, which is called bullet A, B, and C. We would like to get from the minister an update on acquisition of vaccines. Uh, th- this is in relation largely, uh, uh, minister, to an issue related to other vaccines, uh, maybe to improve the pool of the vaccines that you have. Uh, We know that you may not have all the information. Maybe uh, this might also make the committee to consider asking SAPRA to come and update us on those vaccines that uh, actually are not yet in the country, but are still to be processed. How far is that process of... uh, uh, actually acquiring those at the level of process by by SAP and then available to you. The second part that is, uh, how are you doing with the vaccine rollout? Uh, This is what uh, uh, honorable minister, you continuously give us every fortnight. And the last part uh, to share with us this Delta variant. Uh, We will then engage with you after this um, uh, presentation and then you could then assist us to clarify Honorable members, this meeting is, is, is going to be two hours because of other pressures that we all have. And uh, we agreed that we will, uh, if, the, if the presentation is 30 minutes, then we'll have an hour and a half to engage with the department thereafter. I now give this opportunity to the minister to actually open up and then assist us with the presentations. Which I would assume it can be related all ABCD done at one time. Thank you, Honorable Minister.
2: Honorable Chair, I propose that in the next meeting we need to have the item on the independence of the regulatory authority based on science, not politics. If in the next meeting we can have that item so that it's important we engage on the matter. Thank you, Honorable Chair.
0: Okay, do write that to me, Honorable Munia. I, I understand it well. We will not discuss that now. I will probably understand it much better. I hear what you are saying, but let's probably reserve that for this meeting and then I'll take
1: it uh, and follow it up thereafter. Thank you very much. Uh, I now recognize the Minister.
3: Thank you, Chairperson. Um, Good afternoon, Chairperson. Good afternoon, honorable members. Um, Thank you very much for this opportunity. I must firstly apologize for the DG who will not be able to join us, but we've got DDGs and other team members who are here who are going to be um, in discussion with the portfolio committee with us. Um, This is due to the fact that he's got meetings with the AG that could not be moved. And then secondly, as a group chair, we felt when we looked at the time that we'll do one presentation. So we'll take the members of the portfolio committee on those three items in one presentation and I'll ask Dr. Anben play to lead in the presentation and then we'll come through. I think this is just on an update. Members would have noted that we've already briefed in public in terms of um, the presence of the Delta variant in the country. And that led to what president had announced in moving the country into alert level four with the restriction as per what we had agreed as cabinet to say, when the risks are higher, we will put more restrictions. And when the risks are lower, we'll lessen the restrictions. This is to assist us in managing the pandemic across the country. Uh, You'd see in terms of the presentation, Chair, that the Delta variant, though it has not completely taken over and replaced the other um, variant, but it is continuing to increase its dominance. And this will be explained so that we are able to clarify even those that are saying, perhaps you shouldn't have, for example, stopped the buying of um, AstraZeneca uh, and rolling out AstraZeneca. At the time, Chair, that this has happened is because we had been advised that beta was dominant in our society, in, in the country. And therefore, when you looked at the efficacy of AstraZeneca, you would have seen that it wouldn't have assisted as in protecting the nation. So we continue to follow the evidence-based interventions and the work that we are doing. And that will be spoken to when we come as well to reflect on the current available uh, vaccines in the country or that has been approved on the basis of the information that we receive as a country through the regulator that is there to do its work independently. So thank you very much, Chair. I'll hand over to the DDG to present and then I'll come in again as part of the response,
4: giving the response. Um, Good afternoon, uh, Minister, Deputy Minister, honorable members um, and colleagues. Uh, So my presentation today uh, relates to the Health Portfolio Committee presentation on COVID as the minister has outlined. So um, moving to the next slide, Um, I'm going to cover the epidemiology and surveillance as well as uh, the Delta variant and just give you an update on the vaccine um, uh, procurement as well. So um, uh, honorable members, you can see from this graph, which is the SARS-CoV-2 cases covering the first, second and third waves Uh, Looking at a seven day moving average of 100,000 cases Um, and the three graphs are superimposed so that we can get a sense about what's going on and in the yellow graph, um, you can see that that's the first wave and it was probably much lower, uh, as you can see there. And then the second wave, which is uh, uh, green in color, uh, was much higher than, the, than the, 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 the first wave. And now we're currently with the, with the third wave, and this is where it is currently, um, uh, certainly threatening to, to, uh, to uh, reach the levels of the second wave or potentially even pass it. What you notice very interestingly <laughs> is that the, um, the, the increase in the cases initially was low, and then suddenly at this point, you can see the, the uh, steepness of the curve and a much more rapid increase in cases across the country. Uh, moving to the, uh, to the continent, uh, uh, honorable members, you can see that uh, 5.2 million cases across the continent, uh, which is about three percent of our global cases. Uh, this was up until about 24th of June. Uh, with about 139,000 deaths with a case fatality ratio of about 2.6. Still a bit lower than the 3.6 of global deaths, uh, but there may be some reporting issues here. What you can see on the right-hand side is uh, uh, countries that uh, have reported one wave or two waves or three waves. And you can see generally across our continent, most countries have either had two or three waves. Uh, South Africa, we're in our th- third wave already, and so are many of our, our neighbors as well. Um, moving to the uh, COVID-19 in South Africa, looking at uh, uh, cases, hospital admissions, as well as deaths, you can see the, uh, uh, the black line uh, reflecting the number of new cases and the gray area reflecting the hospital admissions, you can actually be excused for assuming that we're trying to shade in the area under the graph. But the reality is that uh, hospital admissions very closely mimic new cases. So if we want to prevent hospital admissions, the key strategy has to be to prevent transmission of infection. Um, the red line reflects deaths. And you can see there's also a very close correlation between uh, deaths and, and hospital admissions as well as new cases. So preventing new cases become very important. Uh, this uh, uh, re- represents the r naught, or what we call the reproductive rate. It's the average number of new infections caused by a single infected individual. So how many people on average does one infected person Infect, and uh, if the number falls below one, that's very good because it means that when I'm infected, I'm not able to infect other people. And uh, that then reduces the spread of the infection. When the number gets above one, that means I'm infecting more people. Not only am I infected, but I'm infecting more than one person. And so this uh, currently is sitting at about 1.43 uh, as per our calculation, we need to get this number down to one. This gives us a sense about the daily tests, as well as the proportions that are testing positive. And we can see on the left-hand side of the graph relating to the number of daily tests. And on the right-hand side, the average weekly proportions testing positive. Very close relationship between the two. Uh, As uh, more people get infected, they come in to be tested and uh, uh, there's increases in testing. And linked to the increase in testing is greater levels of case finding. We can see that the, the percentage testing positive uh, is, is getting to a level of about 24, 25%, uh, which is about one in four, uh, which is fairly high in some some provinces. It's uh, it's higher than 30%, such as Gauteng. So a significant number of people that are positive. It usually gives us a sense about if we went into any environment, what we would anticipate. So for every three or four people, depending where you are, you can anticipate that one of those individuals may be infected. They may not necessarily be aware if they are asymptomatic. Here, this uh, graph confirms the number of uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 cases by province. And uh, you can see very clearly that Gauteng is uh, Increase so significantly relative to all the other provinces. On the other hand, we can also see that the Northern Cape is uh, declining. It hasn't declined to levels that, that, are, that are acceptable, but certainly it's moving in the right direction. And set, uh, we hope that it continues in that way. We also see similar trends in the case of the free state. So Northern Cape and the free state seem to suggest uh, that they will continue to decline. However, the other provinces are all showing increases, some more rapid than others. uh, And uh, those are the areas where we have to intervene and make sure that we reduce transmission. This uh, gives you a a much closer snapshot uh, of the more immediate period. The other graph was for for the two waves. But this is just the way that we're currently in currently, and you can see uh, the the distinct difference between Gauteng and the other provinces, Uh, largely driven, we would anticipate by the uh, presence of the variant as well as uh, the uh, um, uh, non-compliance with the non-pharmaceutical interventions of mask wearing and social distancing. So you can see here that uh, provinces such as the Western Cape uh, are showing increases, Mpumalanga as well, Limpopo, uh, KZN in Eastern Cape, much lower levels, but uh, um, those need to be quickly stopped in order to make sure that they don't get get into the blazing inferno that we're trying to to stop. Uh, To give you a sense of the time series on the 31st of May, we just had two provinces that uh, uh, had high levels of uh, of, uh, cases. And uh, uh, those, those were free state and the Northern Cape with the Northwest slightly behind. And uh, over time, we can see that the Northwest uh, increased and then we had spread uh, in the Western Cape. And now we have uh, uh, largely four provinces that are at high levels of infection, the, the Western Cape, Northern Cape, free state, as well as the Northwest province. Uh, this is uh, a, an output from the uh, work of the modeling consortium. And uh, you can see similar to the uh, previous graph that uh, most of the provinces are basically uh, um, past the point of uh, the definition of a third wave. Uh, um, that's uh, uh, largely uh, Gauteng, uh, the no- the uh, uh, Northern Cape, the Free State, the Northwest, as well as the Western Cape. Um, at this stage, the uh, KZN has still a little bit of... Uh, 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 time to go. You can see that on the on this uh, graph here. Uh, before the uh, they they breach that level, hopefully there can be some interventions here, and this could stop the spread. Uh, the Eastern Cape as well were much closer to to breaching that level, um, and in the case of the Western Cape, they've already done so, um, as you can see there. And the the, the Mpumalanga province as well has a little bit of breathing space. Uh, In terms of our expected and actual all-cause deaths during uh, uh, COVID-19, the red red, uh, uh, line depicts the uh, recorded deaths, the black line reflecting the cases, and then we have the predicted uh, uh, deaths in between. And you can see the expected versus the actual all-cause deaths uh, um, with infection over time, uh, uh, graphically representing the lockdown levels that we had at the top, uh, Level, uh, the lockdown level five, the level four, and then three, and moving down, and now we've had to increase again, and the impact that's that's going to have on cases. Moving then, uh will to the detection of the uh, uh, Delta variant, which was uh, announced over the weekend. Um, so, we, we we started detecting the, the Delta variant uh, sometime in June, and uh, you can see the rapid rise in the, in the Delta variant. Uh, prior to that, the, uh, the yellow b- lines uh, show you the beta variant that was uh, largely dominant in the country. And just over a short space of time, the Delta variant has displaced the, the uh, uh, beta variant in, in a number of areas. Um, you can also see, I uh, draw your attention to the uh, Kappa uh, uh, variant, which is in the pink color. Uh, and that is also emerging uh, uh, in some provinces. I'll I'll give you a a provincial breakdown just now, Uh, but very clearly that's another variant to to watch. The alpha variant you can see is uh, largely petered off, uh, very low levels of the alpha variant at this stage. Going to the uh, uh, province of KwaZulu-Natal, here you can see increases in the the, uh, uh, orange area reflects largely the beta variant, the green reflects the uh, delta variant. And you can see how over a very short period of time, the delta variant has started to displace the uh, beta variant. And so we anticipate over a period of time that the delta variant is going to get to much higher levels. And this may explain the, the dark line, which is actually the daily cases, the increase in the daily cases. So we anticipate that the delta variant is playing a a significant role in driving up the cases. Moving to the Western Cape, a very similar picture. Here you can see the, uh, the Delta variant again uh, uh, increasing and displacing out the Beta the, the, uh, uh, variant. What's interesting in the Western Cape is this pink uh, 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 area here, which reflects the ETA variant at this stage, doesn't seem to be as dominant as the, as the Delta variant. We obviously must watch this. Uh, but uh, this increase in the Western Cape certainly can be attributed to the Delta variant as well. Moving to Gauteng, you can see the uh, rapid rise linked uh, almost uh, 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 in parallel to the increase in the, in the uh, uh, Delta variant and uh, its quantity and, uh, and, and the way it's moving. The, the um, Alpha variant still exists in Gauteng, but to a very low extent. And I think over a, a couple of weeks, we probably will see this entire portion of the graph uh, being shaded green, as we anticipate that the Delta variant will will continue in and will displace the beta variant. In the Eastern Cape, uh, a fairly similar picture uh, in terms of, uh, of the variant, not uh, 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 moving as fast as the, as the other provinces, interestingly, uh, there may be some theories about that. Zero Ser- prevalence seems to be one theory, g- given the Eastern Cape had such a severe second wave. But certainly, you can see increases in the in the uh, uh, um, uh, Delta variant presence over the past couple of weeks, and we'll need to keep watching that to see how that uh, progresses. But certainly, contributing to the to the increase in cases, as you can see here. Limpopo, very similar picture to the other provinces, uh, uh, rises in the the Delta variant and also a rise in cases linked very closely to that. Um, In terms of global distribution, I think it's important to say that uh, while the Delta variant was sampled in India in October 2020, uh, it is uh, now detected in over 85 countries, uh, including several in Africa, as you can see um, across the continent where they are able to actually, uh, do the studies to assess the, the, the variant, but in a number of other African countries, it remains quite, uh, uh, endemic as well as in South America, North Europe, as well as Southeast Asia, Australia as well. So it's a, it's a fairly dominant variant, uh, uh, it seems to be taking over the, from the other variants. Um, in terms of vaccine registrations, let me, uh, uh just say that, uh, Uh, As you know, vaccines are are considered for procurement after registration by SAPRA. At this stage, the Ministerial Advisory Committee on Vaccines uh, would also advise the minister on the selection of vaccines, the procurement, and the use of the vaccines in particular uh, groups. Uh, SAPRA has, uh, uh, to date, as you may know, uh, uh, approved the use of the Pfizer vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, and the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, and we are currently procuring and rolling out the Pfizer, as well as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. SAPRA is currently reviewing the, uh, the dossier or the data uh, related to the uh, safety and efficacy, as well as quality, of uh, three vaccines, Sinovac, Sinopharm, and Sputnik. Uh, and the intention is uh, to, to register these vaccines if they, if they consider the data to be acceptable in terms of scientific standards. Uh, in summary, then, uh, Chair, if I can say that the Delta variant is now rapidly becoming the dominant variant in South Africa, as well as in a number of countries across the world. Um, it is now There's now good evidence that the Delta variant is certainly more transmissible than the previous circulating vi- viruses, than other variants of concern or interest. Higher levels of transmission, Chair, mean that... Uh, more people will be infected, and as I showed you in the earlier graphs, more infection does mean higher hospitalization as well. So we we are obviously bracing ourselves for higher levels of hospitalization linked to this variant if it continues to spread at the rate that it is. There is some reduction in neutralization as well from the convalescent serum that has been collected uh, post-beta infection, which does raise concerns about the potential for reinfection. So simply put, if you were infected previously with the beta variant, it is quite likely, uh, if you are now exposed to the uh, delta variant, that you could be reinfected. That's what uh, uh, some of the studies are suggesting. So uh, if you've been previously infected, you need to continue to wear your mask, social distance, and and follow all of the non-pharmaceutical interventions, whether you've had a vaccine or not. In terms of vaccine effectiveness, uh, this has been a a question relating to the the variant. Uh, So vaccine effectiveness data from the UK suggests that certainly there's very good protection against symptomatic disease and very high levels of protection against hospitalization from two doses of the Pfizer vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine. We don't have any data relating to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine yet, but from using our first principles, We would anticipate that uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will perform similar to the AstraZeneca vaccine, but we'll await the studies around that. Uh, So we anticipate that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will be as effective as the AstraZeneca vaccine against this variant. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Minister and Chair. I will stop there. Uh, Thank you very
1: much, uh Thank you very
0: much, uh, Dr. Anpan, and uh, the following members have actually indicated, there are eight of them who have indicated that they would like to engage with the presentation. Uh, Now there's a ninth one. I'm number
5: nine, Chairperson. I'm number nine.
0: (laughs) Uh, You can count very well. (laughs) Uh, The first one is Honorable Sheikh Imam, number one. Please, Honorable Members, once we have asked a question, the following one, then must just follow immediately so that they don't come in between. Number two, Honourable Van Staden. Number three, Honourable Ismail. Number four, Honourable Kwahube. Number five, Honourable Wilson. Number six, Honourable Sokacha. Number seven, Honourable Sukers. Number eight, Honourable Dr Jacobs. Number nine, Honorable Dr. Tembegwayo, and number 10, Honorable Munyai. Now, uh, Minister, in your opening remarks, it was very interesting. You mentioned the issue of AstraZeneca. Now, I was just wondering what, what, what type of uh, debate is this one starting in? Because uh, we were aware when AstraZeneca landed in our shores that the government was advised by scientists that uh, it will not be effective against that particular variant then. And, and this committee and all of us were saying, we wish therefore that you could dispense of that without having fruitless expenditure. And uh, you did make sure that this, vac- this uh, vaccine was sold to some countries that needed that. Now to come back now and say, no, the government should not have sold the AstraZeneca, but that AstraZeneca was expiring in, in April what would have been the use of that AstraZeneca if we kept it now, uh, now that we now know that Delta. Uh, uh, so I just think that explanation you gave is something that should just actually continue to uh, shut that type of a noise, because I just don't know. Yes, if AstraZeneca is now receptive, so be it. But we could not have used the AstraZeneca that came in February, because it has an expiry date. And if we had left it and say, we hope and pray, Delta comes to our shores, only then we use it, would have been accused of uh, wasting taxpayers' resources. But uh, uh, maybe other members would ask questions. Let me then give the members to start in that order. Honorable members, start.
6: Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. And uh, thank you to the department for the briefing today. Uh, The first question I have is, uh, Acting Minister, I have sent you a a, a a correspondence with a whole lot of questions. Could you perhaps give me an indication when I could get responses to these questions that I have posed to you? That's the first thing. If you remember in the last meeting, I highlighted the success rate of a Dr. Shankara Chetty, who is now being recognized more and more worldwide. And together with that, if you look at what Minister Nkosazanat Tlamini Zuma said, that we simultaneously while dealing with vaccine need to look at alternative solutions. This is one of the solutions, my understanding is to date, you have not even contacted me. And, 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 and I have a very serious concern of that. One that may have any solution to the problems of the country should be hastily considered or at least have a discussion with them to see where it can actually take them. That. That's the next thing. The third issue I have is I'm told that vaccines are being distributed to many sites and some of these sites have vaccines still available because there's a slow take. People are not coming in to take these vaccines. What process have you got in place to redirect them so that they do not expire or got wasted and things like that? Because you know there is limitations in terms of of that. Now I know, and I like what uh, Dr. Anban Pillai spoke about the independence. And very importantly, he said that after registration then only you will be able to uh, 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 procure. But I want to remind Dr. Anban Pulley and the department that's not true, that when we ordered the vaccines, the AstraZeneca, it was already on its way when an application was not even done at that stage. And yet you talk about independence. Can you please tell me about independence? When the chairperson of your board and the husband is a a director in a procurement company, can we get independence? Can we get independence when the CEO of Sapra comes from McKinsey and McKinsey together with Aspen Pharmaceuticals and Johnson & Johnson have been involved in not only corruption, but mass deaths plus on the cancer related products that they've manufactured, upscaling the pricing, don't you think we have reason to be suspicious and be concerned about what is actually going on in terms of that?
7: Now, let's talk about
6: the Delta. it. In this particular portfolio committee, we highlighted this a long time ago. And we even asked for measures to be put in place to stop the travel from India because you knew what was going on in India. But once again, you failed to take timious action. You've allowed it. And let me tell you the response. Some of the most ridiculous response came from the department. You were telling us that there's no direct flight, but people tested negative in India when they landed here, they tested positive because they even go as far as buy the COVID test results uh, there. That's what Mm -hmm. has actually, happened. there's been a death reported in the Eastern Cape in mind of a hospital worker after having taken the jab. Now, can you tell us what is the position in terms of this? Or is the department now going to, to refute these claims and and, and not compensate these people. Can you tell us what is really the latest in terms of of what you've established? Now, I just wanna go to this, there's a statement statement that was released by Johnson & Johnson on the 28th of May, that there's a plausible connection between their product and clotting plus thrombocytopenia. I hope that's the correct, but Dr. Jacobs will help me to correct my pronunciation. Despite that, neither the DAOH or SEPRA made any statement advising the public about this danger. Why? The World Health Organization called for a halt immediately on youth vaccination based on myocarditis. I think it's all reported among young people in the United States after taking the Pfizer vaccine. What is your response about it? Are the per- 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 parties aware of the prim- report by Dr. Tess Tesslory where over 800,000 adverse event victims have been reported. But we're not hearing anything about it. So in a nutshell, I want to know how many, once again, people have tested positive after taking the vaccine, how many of them might have been infected, and how many of them have died. Why are we not getting these reports? You're giving us the PCR reports every day, which is unreliable anyway. But why are you not giving us these reports which we need if you can explain to me that, I, I would really appreciate it. But once again, I want to know what has happened to ivermectin. Where is the report from SATRA, which I've asked in the last meeting, which assured me you're going to look into, why are they not giving us that report in terms of the settlement agreement, in terms of uh, what they've agreed in, 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 in court? So if you can just perhaps answer me that, I'll appreciate it. Chairperson, thank you very much.
7: Thank you, Honourable Chairperson, and good evening to, to all the Honourable members uh, and to the Honourable Minister. Honourable Minister, um, in the light of the fact that only 2.7 million people have till, till now been vaccinated, and that includes our healthcare workers, and in the light of the fact that new variants are now getting more and more people infected, and but Gauteng is now under lockdown, and people are now getting more infected in big numbers, Uh, will it not be better to completely open registrations for vaccinations for everyone above the age of 18 and that people who want to be vaccinated be up on a sort of a first-come, 1st serve basis? I I will tell you why. Uh, Otherwise, we as South Africa will take for a very, very, very long time to get our population vaccinated and to get those vaccinated who wants to be vaccinated. So in my, my point of view, I think we must speed up the process. Um, I am currently aware of a 29-year-old patient that is Down syndrome and that is autistic and is in urgently need for a vaccine. Um, now, this patient cannot be out at this moment due to the registration system that is only open for the ages 60 and above. And we know this coming uh, week to come, the 15 to 59ers will open. But what measures can, are now being put in place to help disabled people who want to be vaccinated? I think this, it, that also must be looked at. And then my second question is, no one can or may be forced to register or to take a vaccine. However, I received complaints from educators that whose choice it is not to be vaccinated must now end in sworn affidavits at the schools they, where they are working that stipulated why it is their choice not to take the vaccination. Can the acting minister please consult with ministers of other departments and bring the situation under their attention, please, as no one can be forced to take any vaccinations. My third question is, um, on the 25th of June this year, a circular was issued, and I have it in front of me, to heads of provincial health departments, heads of pharmaceutical services, district managers, Vaccine program manages vaccination site managers, and COVID-19 vaccinators. And in this letter, it is stipulated that pregnant women was excluded from COVID-19 vaccine trials and that data to guide vaccine decision-making are lacking. Uh, it also states that clinical trials on pregnant women are now underway. Now, it is also stated in that letter that certain vaccines should be offered to all pregnant and breastfeeding women who are eligible to be vaccinated. My question on this matter is, how can healthcare workers have discussions with this patient to be vaccinated? And as this letter also states, and I quote, but these discussions should include the fact that safety data for the vaccines in pregnancy and breastfeeding women are currently inadequate, close quote. And do you think this is the correct, correct path to go with pregnant women as there were no clinical trials done on them before? And how do we know that these women and their unborn babies will be safe while receiving these vaccines? So I think it's a matter that must, which, which we need clarity on. I also receive complaints from people who is eligible to be vaccinated that they have been turned away at certain clinics uh, in Gauteng when they went to receive the vaccines, even though they have registered and received the SMS back and, date, uh, SMS back and the date of the vaccinations. And I want to know why is this happening and how will this matter be addressed? can. I think it's important to please explain the differences between all the variants, um, which is currently now South Africa, for South Africans to understand what we are talking about on these meetings, because many people are watching these portfolio committee meetings we are having with you and the department. My last question to the Honorable Minister is, is don't the Minister think that is now the time has come to allow the private sector and provincial governments prepare store and distribute vaccines so that the vaccines can be administered at a much faster pace because like i said earlier this, um, uh, um, earlier but i think we are running on a very very slow pace at this moment and uh, it will take us looks like now it will take us forever to get everybody vaccinated who, who want to be vaccinated thank you much. thank you very much jeperson I appreciate it.
8: good evening. Uh, everybody, and uh, thank you for the presentation. I just have a few questions. My first question, how can cases are significantly higher than other provinces? Now, why is this the case? What have they done differently or what have they not done? My second question, has there been a cost-benefit analysis done by government on the impacts of further restrictions? Does a lockdown save more lives than it destroys? Do we have an evidence to back lockdown restrictions? And if not, why not? My third question: What studies are being conducted for J and J's efficacy for the Delta variant, and how long will we get? How long will it take before we can get the results of these studies? On the same point of J and vaccine vaccines, please also advise if J and J will need a booster shot, as stated in some. Uh,
1: I've lost Honorable Ismail. Honorable
0: Ismail. Uh, maybe she's not aware we have lost her. Okay. Honorable Kwafube coming. Uh, we'll go back to her if she comes back.
9: Thanks, Chairperson, and uh, uh, good evening, everybody. Report. My first question
8: about able to fake okay. testimonies
9: or how sure basically think is...
0: Uh, Honorable Ismail, you come back and disappear again. Uh, we are moving to another member. Try and improve your connectivity to that side. We will come back to you once you think you are okay. Uh, Honorable Kwahube, continue. Yeah, Honorable Kwahube, continue.
9: Hi, Chairperson. Yes, yes, I'm here. Thanks for the presentation and uh, good evening, everybody. I have a number of questions. Um, The first one being, of course... You know we can understand the, the 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 issue around AstraZeneca and how that vaccine at the time was not um, uh, effective against the variant that we had at the time now what i 'm more interested in is that what is the process of being able to source it and source the supply once again? Um, since now that it has been sold? And, you know, how quick in terms of, you know, will Sapa be looking at the scientific um, uh, trials or scientific evidence that they had before? And will that mean that if the DOH and South Africa tries to source um, AstraZeneca again, it would not necessarily go through a longer process to try and get the regulator to Um, to to essentially approve it. Of course, I don't expect the department to speak on behalf of the regulator, but it would be interesting to note whether or not this is something that we are able to source and we're able to source quickly, considering the fact that uh, clinical trials were done uh, before. Then the second question is around the vaccination and the pace at which those are happening. 121,000 vaccinations yesterday were done. And this is, this is a question that is recurring, Acting Minister, and, um, and it has been a question that we've consistently been asking. Um, yes, we've received, you know, the, the commitments from the department that we're going to wrap this up. We're going to the target initially was between 250 to 300,000 per, people a day. Now that um, the, 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 the category of people who are able to be vaccinated has been expanded. I mean, we're looking at over 60 healthcare workers who still not complete um, people, teachers those in the front lines, one would assume that considering that a lot more people can be vaccinated and considering the fact that we've been told that supply is now fairly consistent, why is it that we are still not meeting our targets? 121,000 vaccinations per day is dismal. It is for a country that is basically in the throes of a devastating third wave. We are nowhere near where we need to be. So I would like to understand Where, again, is the throttling factor? Because when we have these meetings, we are told, you know, we'll ramp it up, we'll open more sites, we will, uh, you know, we'll make sure that more and more people are being vaccinated a day, but it's not happening, And, you know, and weeks are going by, the target of meeting of of vaccinating 5 million over 60s was meant to be today. And I have no idea how many over 60s have now been vaccinated. But clearly, even despite the fact that there have been delays, we are nowhere near where we should be. Then the third question, I think uh, Honourable Van Staden didn't touch on it, what is the, the 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 view of the department in terms of allowing the private sector, professional bodies and other players in the country to be able, under strict regulations, of course, that can be imposed of allowing distribution of the vaccines. I understand there may be limitations in terms of what is the obligation of the department to how vaccinations can be distributed. But of course, now we're under the gun and we are chasing a deadline and we are completely underperforming surely um, you know other players can come on board and many various um companies and and various players in the country have come forward to say we're ready to vaccinate why is there reluctance or reticence to do that then the people with comorbidities when are they expecting to be to be able to register on the system There was a lot of talk around after 60s, um, we'll be opening up to those who are over 40 with comorbidities. That kind of language has kind of seemed to fall away. And we get a lot of queries from people saying, I'm 39 or whatever, and I have hectic comorbidities. When will I be able to register? And I'm not entirely sure how the plan is, because now there seems to be a segue of looking at teachers and other frontline workers. And so what is the thinking of the department? Um, what is sort of the sequence in terms of being who who is next, and what is the rationale be to, behind who will be next? And the last question is, what scientific evidence is so? So let me simplify it in this way: what What is the department seeking to 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 get, other than essentially building up healthcare care system capacity? In the in the during this lockdown, because I suppose now that the issue around uh, balancing livelihoods and lives is now yet a, an, a more urgent question than it was during the first lockdown. We're now in a third lockdown, and it's a lot more urgent to open up industry. So, what is the department saying they are seeking to achieve in the two weeks that there is going to be a shutdown, and what kind of markers of success can we as an oversight body look at? to see have you achieved it because the last the first lockdown last year the department said well we want we would like the 21 days to build health system capacity 21 days came and went more lockdowns came and went and there wasn't really tangible system capacity that we could, point, could we could point to so if we can get some kind of tangibles so that we too can look at what we can judge you on at the end of this lockdown period thank you
0: uh, honorable, members, uh, honorable members, if you are able to switch on your video, uh, if your connectivity allows you, please do so. But otherwise, if you have a challenge, uh, we'll, uh, we'll also accept, accept. But try and switch on your video when you speak. Thank you.
10: Thank you, Honourable Chairperson, and thank you to the Acting Minister and Dr Pillay for the information shared with us. However, while I'm principally covered on some of my questions by speakers ahead of me, I do have uh, other questions I would like to have dealt with. And the first one is, and there's an awful lot of of information circulating about this at the moment, we obviously do have the anti-vaxxer communities who are constantly talking about the amount of people who've had bad reactions to to vaccines, who've died, who've had heart attacks, who've had um, embolisms, who've had the whole band shoot. And I think it's very important that an assessment on this is done and that we actually get figures um, with regards to how many people have had bad reactions um, severe reactions or deathly reactions and, and from which um, specific vaccines it's hard for people you know people hear the anti-vaxxers and say oh, all these people are dying or have got COVID or died after a vaccine or had severe implications after the vaccine and this kind of information is quite important, for, particularly for those of us who are trying to defend the fact that that, that vaccines must take place or, that, or who are supposed to be encouraging people to take vaccinations. Because obviously, if 1% of a million or 1% you know, of, of large numbers are having a bad reaction, that is to be expected because we know um, that a lot of people have reactions to, to vaccines for a lot of different reasons. Um, and these kind of a uh, uh, percentages will assist us in, in, in discussing these issues with people, saying people do have bad reactions to, to vaccines, some worse than others, um, but it's one in a hundred or one in a thousand or one in a million, whatever it may be, um, so that we can calm the situation down. And I think these kind of things need to be communicated. So if we could please have some kind of information around that, I believe it is very critical. I hear what uh, Dr. Dromo says about the, the AstraZeneca and the fact that we, we, we sold it on because we couldn't use it. And I had a concern with that ab- at the time. Um, and the reason given was that we had a low efficacy rate against the, the variant that we were probably dealing with at, at that time. Um, now, this is understandable, but only to a good point. A low efficacy rate for me is better than not having a vaccine and having no protection whatsoever. Um, And I did, I found that very concerning because I believe that some protection is better than no protection. And the end result was, is that we sold on a vaccine that could have potentially today have saved a lot of lives Um, So, I do have a concern about that, and I I go back to what um, my colleague, uh, Honourable Khwarubi said. Are we getting it again? How quickly can we get it? And how quickly can we start distributing it? We are seeing very, very different symptoms um, out of the current Delta variant. Um, The symptoms are very different to those of the first two waves that we saw under a different variant. Um, And I don't believe that enough is being done to communicate the changing symptoms. I have several family and several friends who are currently suffering with COVID. And the most prominent um, uh, sign, the most prominent thing that they had was very severe headaches. And I don't think people are aware of that, that the the, um, the symptoms for the, the new variant have changed considerably and that people should actually be watching out for something different. Because they are similar to flu um, symptoms, I think people need to be made aware that please double check It may not be flu. If it is accompanied by a severe headache or whatever, please go and get yourself checked. People are ignoring it because they're telling us they've got flu. They haven't got flu. They've got COVID. I think more needs to be done with communication of that. In your slides and and, and on the one, Lepopo particularly and and, um, Dr. Pillay, you said you would come back to us with regards to the Kappa variant. Um, In the slides that you showed us very briefly, Limpopo was the one area that had quite a significant rise in the Kappa variant. If you could just give us some more information on that and potentially why Limpopo versus the others has a higher, um, uh, um, uh, what's the word, while we have more Kappa variants visible in this province, which is where I come from, versus other. Um, and it's not on your slides, and it's probably a bit earlier, but I think we need to know the difference between the transmission versus deaths on the variants that we have seen, the alpha, the beta, the delta. Is there higher death or morbidity rates in the one or not is there, was there higher morbidity rates in the alpha or is, is there higher morbidity rates in the delta? If you can g- perhaps give us some information on that. I want to go, and I, and I reiterate, and I, um, this was covered by the Honorable from Staden, the slow vaccine rollout is, unexpected, uh, is, is unacceptable. And when people are not prepared to take up the vaccines and they are not prepared to take up the vaccines at the moment because of misinformation or disinformation, or no information, what are we going to do about it? And I will sh- and just this last week, week before last, I went to have my vaccine at Clix. Um, I took along my husband and I took along my Anna, who, who stays at my house and who's been working for me for, for close on 30 years. She's part of the family. We were queuing at Clix to be done. Um, and obviously they could, in terms of how many people they can do per vial, um, they were only accepting so many people. So they ended up turning away three or four people because or it was two or three people I think yes saying we can't do you today because we not we can't use or open another vial um, we're not going to be able to finish a vial if we vaccinate you today please come back and try again tomorrow. Having said that my husband, my Anna, and I continued to queue. When we got to the stage where it was time to give us the vaccine, my husband and my Anna were turned away because they did not have medical aids after we'd sat there for nearly four hours. So I don't think that is acceptable. There are people waiting who are desperate for the vaccines, who are prepared to take the vaccines, and there are those who don't. Um, and we they ended up with a situation where they turned my husband and my Anna away um, but ended up with a situation where they had a half full vial, which was the very reason why they turned people away earlier in the day. I think that is that is a, a, a um, problem. And given the growing numbers and the fact that we are in a a 14-day a, a lockdown period at the moment, but we are seeing numbers still exceptionally high, um, what is, and I suppose you can't answer this, and I, I know that you won't, but you know, further lockdowns are another likelihood, um, and I think we're missing the mark on this completely. Um, if we're not vaccinating and people are not taking up the vaccines, and, and not effectively communicating um, very important information to people, um, we're going to continue with the lockdown. That this is something that this country quite simply cannot afford. Thank you, Chairperson.
0: Honourable members, please assist me. Let us hi and give space to other members also in our questions. Honorable Sokata.
1: Thank
11: you. Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Let me also welcome the the report from uh, uh, Dr. Pillay and uh, our minister. Just two questions and two points of clarity, Chair. The first one, uh, Dr. Dr. Pillay said that the numbers are dropping in the Free State and in the Northern Cape. I just want to, uh, as a layman, uh, Honorable Chairperson, I just want to them um, to assist my assumption. My assumption as a layman might be that uh, the number of testing is dropping. People are not coming forward to, to test. Or it can be that uh, uh, our people are adhering to the COVID-19 regulations. I just want to be assisted in 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 my assumption, uh, honorable chairperson. The second one is also a co- uh, comment. Uh, 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 I'm very happy that doctor, uh, uh, Dr. and Dr. Pillay said vaccination can only be considered for procurement after the regulatory body, which is SABRA, has registered uh, uh, the, 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 the 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 vaccination. I'm very happy that he has stressed that. And the second one. He also mentioned that uh, um, uh, uh, the vaccination has got advantages, that is they protect uh, our people from a high level of uh, of uh, symptomatic diseases, and also from uh, a high you know, intake of hospital admissions. Uh, and he said more particularly if you've got your second dose of, of your Pfizer and your uh, AstraZeneca. Then my, my last question, Chair, is around the good example that has been followed by the Limpompo province. Uh, uh, They go out and uh, to reach out for our people at the villages and the remote areas, more particular for our elderly people, because they might not be able to come to the center of town and so on. I'm sure, I just want to check uh, Honorable Chairperson, through the good leadership of our minister and our deputy minister in the department, are they advising other provinces? More particularly the province like my own province in the Northern Cape, uh, KZN and the Eastern Cape, where there are a lot of remote areas. Are they advising those provinces also to follow a good example of Lipombo? Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson.
1: Honorable Sukars.
12: Hi, thank you, Chairperson. Um I am going to uh, just ask uh, firstly uh, to the Minister, thank you for the presentation to the department. Um, we have stated this before, and I think my, some of my colleagues has alluded to it as well. The, the Delta variant, the highly infectious Delta variant that is now driving infections, um, which virtually collapsed the Indian healthcare sector, is now driving our third wave. The previous minister was asked by this committee why travel from India has not immediately stopped and tracking and tracing of persons who travel from India was not instituted. Does the acting minister uh, know why these questions were not taken seriously? And if the department can give this committee an account of that, why that was not done. And um, if they had been, if we have done that, countless lives would have been saved. What practical steps is the acting minister going to take to avoid the repeat? And what plans does uh, the minister have to ensure the department three questions asked by this committee are serious? And I want to underline that really, Chairperson. Secondly, the field hospitals, the Delta variant, which now seems to be the dominant strain in our country, is propelling a dramatic increase in hospital admissions. An acute shortage of ICU beds. Are any field hospitals still open? And what arrangements are being made to reopen field hospitals or provide suitable alternatives in provinces like the Western Cape, in which the third wave will shortly strike? Then, on the question of vaccines, both the Pfizer and the JJ vaccine, I have asked this five times. This is the sixth time that I'm now asking the question has used stem cells from aborted fetuses in either of their developments, either in production or testing. This could be a factor deriving vaccine hesitancy among people who have moral objections. When the previous minister seemed unaware of this, I offered to facilitate the bio um, um, information, which we did. On a Sunday, the minister's spokesperson asked for the information, which I assume was in preparation for meetings, with the faith and the religious communities uh, in in that coming week. Now I'm going to ask the acting minister again. Are there research for the reasons for vaccine hesitancy? I can tell the minister just from my encounters with my constituency that there are religious objections on the basis of what I've just mentioned. Secondly, will the minister consider acquiring ethical vaccines, so to speak? that does not use those cell lines. Then, last year, a study conducted among clinic patients visiting clinics for TB or for HIV treatment for neonatal visits showed some 40% had developed antibodies to COVID-19. A survey was also conducted among blood donors. What is the current level of community or herd immunity And if the acting minister is unaware, what studies are underway to measure this? Then, we are receiving regular reports of vaccine supply constraints and warnings of possible future constraints. The Honourable Seviwe did a good job of speaking about strategic sourcing. I'm going to underline it nonetheless, Jay. Countries that have been successful in the vaccine rollout have been ready for contingencies. We appear to be shocked by every setback. We repeatedly questioned the previous minister about the department's capacity to conduct strategic sourcing or procurement, and we urged him to draw extensively on the private sector. Will the acting minister now act to implement a comprehensive sourcing strategy? Then, I want to ask the question what Honourable Sheikh Imam has raised as well. Why does the department continue and a double talk on Ivermectin? SAPRA and the DOH are under court judgment to make ivermectin available. Can the minister tell us what are the numbers on the compassionate program in terms of access to ivermectin and how many applications in terms of Section 21 have been made and how many have been granted? Then there is an issue, Chair, that this committee must take very seriously, in my opinion. It is the impact of communication, not only in terms of what Honourable Wilson has so articulately expressed here, but also in terms of the impact of how we are communicating the daily stats of deaths on COVID-19, as well as infections, and the impact of that on a nation who has no um, um, strong um, support in terms of psycho support or mental support for people in trauma. There is a collective trauma that our people are experiencing. In fact, members of parliament that are working, I know, are suffering greatly because of the pressures that we are under. What is the impact of how we are communicating daily death rates and infection? And is there a different way in which we can communicate it? Then, lastly, Chair, two comments. The one is that COVID-19 can be overcome. People, it has got more than a 90% recovery rate. That needs to be communicated because our people are gripped in fear. And we need to um, 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 make sure that we tell people, you can survive this. The department must take a, 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 an approach that is much more positive in how we are addressing this. Then, the lastly, there is a direct correlation between adherence and compliance and trust in government. This ca- committee's chair cannot afford lip service From the department anymore, or death by PowerPoint. So I am please asking the minister and for the committee here that all the questions that we are asking is in the best interest of the people that we serve. The department must do better to act on the questions that the committee has consistently asked since last year in December when we came back early. Thank you.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. okay. Okay. Yes, Dr. Jacobs, yes.
13: May I continue, sir?
0: Yes, we must continue.
13: Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you very much for the presentation from the Minister and from the Department. The one question that I keep asking myself is, what is the most important thing right now for any person within South Africa? And the answer is very simple. It is, what is good for that person and that person's family? How does this thing impact on the life, and what are the deaths, and how does that impact on every single person, and how does it even impact financially on the people? When you get sick, as we all know now, it's going to cost you a lot of money. If you in the if you, uh, for example, have to pay uh, through a medical aid, or whether it's going to be a family member who needs support, etc. There's going to be a lot of economic uh challenges for all people who become sick with COVID-19 so you know bearing that question in mind I need to ask myself why have we shifted so much towards the vaccines now I understand I am the one also one of those who push vaccination lives but I want to ask why are we not talking about the things so much anymore as we did within the first wave when we were going out there to actively support people, promote uh, uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions, explaining to people, having communication strategies, uh, uh, the, the different uh, um, WhatsApp groups we, which were formed, the different uh, platforms which were opened on which we could find and seek interventions. Uh, I, I don't see that anymore. I don't see the kind of reporting we used to have where people could go onto a platform and, and really just easily find uh, what is happening in the immediate vicinity. Now, I know we're talking at a national level, but I also understand that our national level has, has uh, some, um, some means of, uh, of interaction, for example, the provinces and in the provinces with the districts, etc. So when I come back to, my, to, the, to that question, I must ask myself now, this third wave, we knew it was coming, it is here now. How does it impact on our hospitals? How does it impact on, on uh, our people who are patients, on those who are, who are to have operations, those who have received chronic medicines, those who are at the district health services, uh, our healthcare workers themselves, You know, we're not talking about it anymore. And I I am just raising from my side the concern. How does it impact on the hospital levels? I've also raised the question constantly about the field field, uh, hospitals, for example. Yes, I understand all of these things do cost money. And all of these things in the current economic situation that we are, are challenges. But I am requesting that we really Keep on speaking about this. We keep on speaking about admissions, bed occupancy rates, oxygen needs, um, needs of medication, um, informing people where to go to. You know, we have learned so much uh, from the first wave and the second wave, and we have really beaten the first wave and the second wave. And now we have the new delta the new delta variant. And obviously, we are going to learn from the new variant uh, chair. So, you know, I, I, I hope you can understand what I'm saying. I'm saying, yes, let us continue with the vaccinations. Yes, let's have the vaccination drive. Yes, let us move fast on the vaccination drive and get all the vaccines which can be approved to be approved. And we make certain that we save our people in that way because we need to reach population immunity. But on the other hand, let's pick up on what we learned before. Let's start with our community awareness programs, our screening and testing sites. Uh, our our sites where people can go to for for quick screening where people can go to and quick testing where people can go to for to be hospitalized and i will constantly say that the mainstay of treatment for any patient as soon as a person starts being ill is a supply of oxygen to that person because that saves life we know that it has to do with the saturation Oxygen saturation in the blood, as soon as somebody drops below 92%, you are in trouble. And uh, we need to get those messages home, drive them home, get the communication strategies uh, right, which we used to have in place before, and in the same way, need to protect our healthcare workers. And very last question, Chair, I noticed that there are no data for the J&J vaccine, but I do have a concern that all our healthcare workers were vaccinated with the J&J vaccine. I would hope and I would think that there must be a study somewhere that is looking at the immunity reach by uh, those who were vaccinated with the J&J vaccine. What impact would that have on the the health of our healthcare workers so that they'd be able to continue to deliver the services which they are delivering? Thank you, Chairperson.
5: Thank you, Chairperson. Thanks. And um, uh, thank you for the presentation from the department. Uh, I just would like to start with the first one. Uh, there was a Sisonke findings, uh, findings that were released uh, in April and uh, of which out of the 288.368 South Africans, South African healthcare workers, who were vaccinated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. 50 of those had severe and or serious side effects. Uh, That number, that was never mentioned in the presentations uh, that were done including the, the presentation for today because there was only a mention of very few. I mean, very few, a number of 50 cannot be comparable to attempt very few so my question is what uh, what happened to the, those 50 is the department aware of them and uh, is there any report that uh, can we have a report on that if there's any and if there's no report i also would like to know why because in actual fact the committee itself uh, is associated with the, the Sysomke uh, people who are doing their research thereof. And then I would also have engaged uh, the, the, the department on matters of AstraZeneca, but unfortunately it was clearly uh, said by our the, the chairperson of the committee. But I would like to say this new information on AstraZeneca is indicative of confusion you know, of the department and lack of consistency uh, as the order of the day. I mean, South Africans would like to, to receive information that is consistent, especially when it comes to health uh, related matters. The following question is, I would like to ask uh, the minister to say, uh, what is your take on the SAPRA Association? To pharmaceutical companies led by Bill Gates and uh, uh, Melinda Foundation, and more specifically, including uh, what is that the the issue of conflict of interest, whereby they received 27.6 million and 45 million in 2019 and 2020, respectively, from Gates Foundation the very same Bill Gates who has shares in Johnson & Johnson. That's why we say, Minister, we need definitely a, a vaccines from other countries as we have reiterated on this matter. To say, we can we have vaccines from Russia, China, and Cuba, which would indicate a move away from the American vaccines. And I think South Africans will be satisfied uh, to, to hear of such an, an announcement from your department. The following questions Why are the people who are on medical aid and who register successfully on EVDS but are allocated places where they can receive vaccines very far? From their for, for, from their places from from their uh, res- residential areas, I am making reference to non-discovery medical aid holders. And please, Minister, can you go and check? on the the, the, the number that people call to find out about the availability of vaccines and their places because the responses that people get from that line, it's not professional as we expect it to be because that is a line that serves the South Africans, but we are not satisfied by the responses that we get from them. And the last question is that, I am your rollout plan is not clear enough. And we need an open, solid plan, rollout plan that can be applauded by all South Africans. When can we expect it to have that from you? Thank you.
0: After Honorable Munyai will try and get back, Honorable Ismail. She did not complete her questions.
2: Honourable Chairperson, there's no doubt. I think first and foremost, we welcome the reports, both two reports from the from the ministry. I do education? We sorry about it. Uh, we welcome two reports from the from the ministry, which are the one that really give us the current state of affairs with the with the vaccine as well as the as the Delta variant. And I think we welcome that report. And I'm sure as the portfolio committee we should adopt that report as a very important progress before this portfolio committee. There's no doubt, honorable chairperson, there's no doubt that COVID-19 vaccine uh, can provide protection against many dangerous variances, such as Delta and the others that has been mentioned here today. It is very important that we demand universal global access to vaccine, especially to South Africa, South Africa, Africa, and the rest of the developing countries. It is within our national interest as the Republic of South Africa, that all our people as a whole are vaccinated as practical and urgent as possible. And the vaccination number in these instances, Honorable Minister, has declined. Is this maybe have to do with the lack of vaccine? or the lack of uh, vaccine uh, supply, or it's a lack of human resource capacity. It is very important to understand that. Honorable Chair, uh, the United Nation Chief Economics, uh, Elliot Harris argued the following, open quote, "The timely and universal access to, vac- to COVID-19 vaccinations will make the difference between the promptly ending the pandemic and placing the global economy on the resilient recovery traject, or losing more years of growth and development and opportunities, close quote. All we're trying to put, uh, all we're trying to plea with the ministry is that while we welcome the report, we need more supply of the vaccine. We need whether, whether, whether the people are affected Whether our people are are really in a situation where there's a poor socioeconomic status. In fact, regardless of the socioeconomic status, whether a person in Tsikama in the Eastern Cape, whether the people are in Springbok in the Northern Cape, and whether people are in Amudere in Lipopo, the people should have access to vaccine at equal rate. And we know it's not an easy uh, situation, intervention because this has to do with the logistic cold chain and so on, which need to contain this vaccine at a particular temperature. So therefore, as the ANC members of parliament, we are very solid, and it's our view that the rest of the continent and the developing countries should have access to vaccine as a critical national interest, especially in South Africa. And we support the ethos that really the The military, in fact, we need also to request that the military need to come and intervene as well in the deployment of the vaccine to these needy areas. We already know, Honorable Minister, that the the business sectors is already uh, uh, receiving nearly a billion uh, to be able to roll out vaccine. But we are saying that to strengthen the capacity of the, the, the capacity of the developmental state as we are supposed to be in the ANC, the ANC. We need to make sure that uh, we the, we strengthen the capacity of the state by making sure that the military, like any other countries, are able to be allowed to vaccinate our people and the rest of the population. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson.
0: Honorable Ismail.
8: Thank you, Chair. Um- Firstly, apologies for being cut off due to bed connectivity. I hope I can you know, get through my questions now. So where I stopped was my fourth question. What mechanisms do we have in place to ensure people coming through the airports are not bringing in fake test reports? Or how sure are we that these reports are actually true? So the gist of the matter is, what test verification methods are being put in place? My first question, is there any data available to show long-term effects of each vaccine? This is very important as we are getting some reports stating that, you know, people are dying the next day after taking the vaccine. But I think, uh, you know, I think your, uh, you know, communication to, 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 to the citizens out there is important because, uh, sometimes people just hear of this and they start panicky, you know, where they don't want to take the vaccination. So communication of, you know, the symptoms, communications of the, uh, you know, efficacy of these vaccines are very important and enough of this is not being done. I want to also stress, you know, that by now, you know, uh, the department should be aware. We we are in a third lockdown, basically, and the department, the third wave, and the, the department should be aware that they should have been already sourcing vaccines from more than one source. Now, my sixth question, I've been called by many healthcare workers. They are having a problem registering on the system. I'm also going to stress again, the efficacy of the j vaccine is most of our healthcare workers got the j and vaccines. How sure are we that the one job is enough? Honorable minister, we are losing lives rapidly. Our vaccine rollout is extremely slow. Why are vaccinations not taking place on weekends as well? You know, the issue of budget, budget, budget. I think budget is compared to lives is, is, is something we need to deal with. Honorable minister, how prepared are our health facilities? We had the first lockdown and we were told that, you know, the lockdown is taking place in pre- to prepare our health system. And uh, we are now in a third wave, and we still have issues of not enough beds, not enough uh, ventilators, not enough of vaccination supply, uh, uh, you know, oxygen supply. This can't go on. Really, this can't go on. And my last uh, question, Honourable Minister, it's not dealing with COVID or maybe in some way dealing with COVID, but we are facing a pandemic that is taking lives at a rapid speed. We need as many hands available as possible to assist. Yet our interns and com service doctors are not getting placements. Now this is unacceptable and it's unfair. You know their lives are dependent on their placements. Their lives are put on hold simply because the department is not planned effectively. Some have already wasted six. You know they wasted six months. They've wasted six months of their lives. How are they expected to carry on with their lives and careers? Thank you.
0: Okay. No, thank you, Mr. Thank you, honorable members for your questions. Uh, Just from my side, it's just to honorable minister. Uh, The the issue of uh, there are no serious side effects is a very important negative reporting, which will always take away and allay the fears. Uh, I'm not aware, but I know uh, that the, the healthcare workers do communicate. Uh, the vaccination side that if you get a mild headache, take a panado. If you are feeling unwell, just lie down. Uh, and those are not necessarily to be documented, uh, serious side effects to be reported. But uh, you probably need to educate us uh, of the serious side effects. And if you do find them, just that continued reporting, it will help in LA to say that there are no serious side effects that have been recorded to date, or there is one after injecting 2 million South Africans. Uh, that part, I think, will also assist us, uh, uh, but it will, dep- it will depend how quickly the clinicians and hospitals are providing you with information. Because again, it must be asked as the population that must still come and report that I have developed an embolism here or this and that has happened. So, we can You can only report in as far as how much we bring you that information back to you. To emphasize the point that was brought by Honorable Sokacha, a good story to tell from Lipopo. That story needs to spread very quickly because Lipopo is like other three provinces that are very rural, but for them to actually have a significant number of uh, People who are coming in from this uninsured population registered uh, for vaccine is something to be commendable. And uh, that lesson must be learned quickly. Yesterday, Minister, I was listening to uh, Honorable uh, no, uh, Professor Abdul Karim Slim talking about this uh, variant, uh, uh, that it is very transmissible. It's easily transmissible. Uh, but he was not able to comment about how. Uh, he was not strongly commenting about how virulent or how dangerous it is, but it's just that uh, it will make us flood hospitals once you are infected with it, and therefore cautioning us. But uh, uh, are we seeing a number of? Are we really? Are we getting admissions into general wards, or we are beginning to see most of the ICUs in most can- in most parts of our countries? filled uh, up so that we are already experiencing challenges. Uh, if maybe, uh, Minister, I, I like the part that was uh, raised and it's not, I mean, firstly, we do we agree with the Honourable Kwakume to say, at that time, we could not have kept that AstraZeneca, but if there's a consideration uh, of uh, getting it now, now that we have got a Delta one, Uh, Is that something that maybe the minister is thinking about or the department is thinking about? Uh,
1: Thank you very much. Uh, You can then help us with the responses, minister. Thank
3: you very much. I'm going to request um, Dr. Pile and Dr. Chris to come through. We do have as well the, the DM with us and then we'll wrap up.
1: Thank you, Minister.
4: Should I start? Um, my connection is not very really good, so I won't put on my camera. That's okay. Um, I'll deal with the questions uh, relating to COVID, and then uh, uh, Nicholas uh, um, can, can cover some of the the ones relating to vaccines. Um, <clears throat> if I can say that the, in terms of the third wave, after the second wave, we had been planning that we may have a a, a third wave, and so. Uh, We have been working with our provincial colleagues. We developed what we call the Resurgence Plan, um, which outlines the lessons that uh, uh, were learned from the second wave around hospital beds, around oxygen, around PPE, around human resources, as well as medicines, and uh, what needs to happen uh, at a particular point in time in each provincial department in order for them to be ready. They all have that, they have the planning tools. Uh, we, we try and assist them as best we can. Uh, obviously this, this does require information on from them in order to say I'm having a problem here. Uh, we do monitor bed occupancy as well. In terms of adding new bids, uh, we had a meeting with the provincial uh, heads of department. The DG called that meeting uh, this week, and uh, we had uh, a discussion with the HODs about planning for, for the additional bids. They've all uh, already had the plans in place, aligned with the uh, resurgence plans. Many, uh, Most of the provinces have uh, have closed their field hospitals and are using the the current facilities or expansion or extension of the current facilities and the alternative building technologies, simply because of some of the challenges in order to make sure that this is something that can be more sustained. Uh, Because if you you use the field hospital, you probably have to close it after a while and then All some of the resources in there become lost. But if you have it in in your own facility, you can keep that uh, for a longer period, and the investment is more more cost-effective in that context. So most provinces, uh, uh, if not all, have taken that decision after initially procuring a lot of the field hospitals. On the the question relating to to, um, the Free State and Northern Cape, I can say uh, uh, quite clearly that uh, uh, the, the uh, testing is continuing at the at the usual rate. However, there the, is certainly an adherence to the COVID uh, 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 regulations, or the advice, or what, as some scientists say, is when people see around them that there are many people that are getting ill your family members your friends etc landing in hospital or some of them even pass on then that uh, uh, initiates a behavior change the problem though is that that behavior change sometimes is short-lived and uh, we consequently then have people that forget to use a mask and social distance and then that's what drives the next wave and then they, they learn again and then forget again and so we need to we need to get them to consistently apply the non-pharmaceutical interventions because that's the most effective mechanism. Um, the question around how do we compare between the alpha, the beta and the delta variants? the alpha variant was the was the initial variant. Uh, it was not as transmissible as the beta variant and had a, a, a few mutations on it. Um, <clears throat> the beta variant was far more uh, effective in transmission and was much more virulent. Now from the beta variant, we have the delta variant. We certainly know that the delta variant is capable of being more transmiss- transmissible than the beta or the alpha variant. And we don't know yet in terms of its virulence, whether it's going to cause more severe disease than the beta variant. But what is very clear is that if you have a virus that is more transmissible, it does mean that more people will be infected than they were with the beta variant. And as that happens, those that are more susceptible will certainly need hospitalization. And so that's the uh, approach we're, we're, we're thinking and taking and counting. Uh, that's largely what's been happening is that many more people are getting infected far more easily than they would if they were taking the beta and the alpha variant. So being uh, extra cautious is probably the most critical thing in order to make sure that transmission doesn't happen. Um, I think it's important to say that uh, in terms of uh, 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 transmission itself, uh, that uh, this seems to happen in a shorter time frame there's a number of studies that are being done globally since the 85 countries that are affected across europe etc uh, they, they're predicting that the uh, trans- transmission occurs in, at a much shorter period of time than than it would with the case of the of the beta variant. In terms of what do we want to achieve with the lockdown uh, or the level four, I think one of our key objectives here is to make sure we can reduce transmission, which will then reduce hospitalizations and will have the knock-on effect of a reduction in mortality as well. Um, I think that's, that's our key objective here. In terms of uh, the the hospital beds, whether they are they are general or ICU beds, we're certainly seeing many more people being infected, and uh, uh, some of them are, are going into ICU. As I said, if more people are infected in a in a particular population, you can certainly uh, uh, see many more than getting into ICU as a result of that. So I think that's that's important to bear in mind. And then finally, Minister, I just wanted to show these two slides that relate to our, our rationale behind the uh, the selection of the of the age groups for, for vaccination. This comes out of our database on mortality. It's what we call the case fatality ratio. Um, and it relates to uh, the DATCOV system, which the National Institute for Communicable Diseases develops. And here they've looked at age and sex for the period uh, 5th of March, 2020, through to 5th of June, 2021. And what is most uh, uh, um, stark across this is you can see that as age increases, the case fatality ratio increases significantly. So if you look at an age group above the age of 60, you can see that they are sitting with a case fatality ratio above 30%, uh, going in the case of the 80s above 50%. Why am I, why am I showing this, uh, this uh, um, graph? is to make the point, if you open up the vaccinations and just said anybody above the age of 18 can go in for vaccination, since that's the age at which the vaccines are currently registered. And if you have a person who has a risk down here between uh, the age of 30 and 39, you can see there is a massive difference in the risk. So in other words, if this person who's 30 to 39 gets infected with with the virus, the likelihood of mortality is far lower than a person that is 80 years old. So the objective with vaccination is predominantly at this stage to protect the high risk individuals from being infected and then having the severe effects of that, which is uh, hospitalization as well as uh, uh, mortality. I'll just show you this graph as well, which is the what we call the odds ratio Linked to to uh, uh, the risk of mortality, and this is hospital mortality. The data comes out of South Africa. So what you can see the when you have an odds of one, it basically means your chance of mortality is equal whether you had uh, that condition or not. And you can see as age increases, the mortality risk increases phenomenally. This this is what this graph is telling us. Now let us look at comorbidities. This is, this is the equivalent point where, where your odds ratio would be equivalent. You can see here that whether you had hypertension, diabetes, uh, chronic cardiac conditions, kidney disease, et cetera, your risk is much lower than these age groups. Or here, if you look at where, which province you're in, in terms of the healthcare system, whether there are any differences there, there's no significant differences in terms of those issues. The key issue remains Age. And that's the reason why we're using age as the as the key variable in, in determining who we vaccine first and second, et cetera. Thank you, Minister. I'll stop there. If there's other questions, I'm happy to answer them. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Thank
3: Bilye. Sorry,
14: Sorry Minister.
3: You
1: can okay,
14: you. proceed, Dr. Thank you very much, Minister. uh, Evening Chair, Evening Minister, Deputy Minister, and members of the House and colleagues. Um, Thank you very much. I think maybe if if I can just give some high-level comments on uh, numbers first, and then respond to some of the questions. So as of today, or as of yesterday, we had uh, registered just under 4 million people on the the vaccination system, and we had uh, vaccinated at that stage uh, well, today we crossed the 3 million mark of total first dose vaccine or of total vaccinations that we have given to people in the country. Um, obviously, 480,000 of those or thereabouts were done during the Sasonki trial with the J&J vaccine, and the rest have been done since then, since the 17th of May. Now, what we are tracking and tracing at the moment to understand where we are registering and vaccinating And uh, to build on what Dr. Pillay has said about our targeting of the population, we know that at the moment the total population registration coverage is sitting around about 53% for the target population, but it varies a lot from province to province, and we have lessons to learn from that. It's the highest in Limpopo, which is at 74%. Uh, We have said this before in the public space. It means that it's not, and the second highest is the Eastern Cape, Uh, And that means that it's not necessarily the urban areas that are performing well. In fact, it is the rural areas. In fact, the low performances are in the urban areas. Vaccination coverage is around about 47 to 50 percent in KwaZulu-Natal and Limpopo of this target population, uh, whereas in some other provinces it's still below 25 percent. And there are specific problems from one province to the other that we are trying to understand at district level and to assist them. Now, what's interesting is it's very different between the insured population and the uninsured population, whereas in the insured population whose numbers are significantly smaller, we have that um, uh, the, uh, the, the obviously the lowest vaccine coverage is in the rural populations where a relatively small proportion of insured people have in fact registered. Whereas in the urban, in the uninsured population, the rural provinces are doing better than the urban provinces and are getting above 50% vaccination of the uninsured target population as of uh, this week. So we are trying at this stage district by district to um, uh, establish which which districts uh, services are doing well and poorly. And to identi- we have identified that a significant portion of the problems or challenges of those that are not performing that well is because they don't have a lot of vaccination sites and the vaccination sites are um, are, are hampered primarily by geography but also because of the concentration of the private sites in the metropolitan areas. So, for instance, Mgumutlovo um, has the highest vaccination coverage of all districts in the country with over 70% of the target population reached and Ugu being the second highest, whereas we have the the districts in the Northern Cape where the distances are very far and they were going to rely on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which has only just uh, arrived and uh, is being used, not in the population program yet, which I'll speak about in a minute. Uh, They are struggling to get their rates up above 20%. There are some areas some districts where we are identifying that the gap between registrations and vaccinations is uh, very wide and in others where it is very small and where it's very small, it means the demand is running out and it, it that demand is often in areas where the the registration is high, so it means that we that is why we've taken the decision to open to another category because um, otherwise we will run out of the demand of the, of the age group, 60 plus. And, and we have also learned from evidence from other countries that it seems to be that when you introduce, particularly the 50 plus population, they tend to be the children of the 70 pluses and they take the elderly people with them along the vaccination journey. So we're hoping that we, we are going to monitor that and see whether that makes a difference. The registration of the 50 pluses starts tomorrow and before, at least by the 15th of of July, we will be scheduling and seeing 50 plus people being vaccinated. There was a question about how much vaccine we've got. Um, We have now, just in this past week, received a vaccine from uh, the the Pfizer vaccine from the COVAX facility. We also get Pfizer from two separate contracts, so we now have received doses in this quarter um, from the two contracts, and of course, we've received Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which has been announced by the minister in the media, two different deliveries, previous week, Wednesday, Thursday, and this past week, Thursday, that we now have received one and a half million doses of the, the short expiry date vaccine, which we are using in the in, intensive programs and the essential services. We have been uh, criticized for the, num- the slow uptake and the number of people we're able to target, And we know that we are moving towards a 200 to 250,000 and hopefully in excess of that vaccinations per day. We are up in the past week from 85,000 average per workday to over 110,000 at the moment. And uh, as new sites are being brought online uh, by both the public and the private sectors, these numbers will start to increase. Um, We are targeting specific districts that are trailing behind. There was a question from one of the members about uh, equity and that's a concern because you don't want to leave parts of the country behind, want to make sure that every district's uh, people in the target populations are being being reached. So at the moment we have 53% of the target population registered, just under 40% of the target population has been vaccinated and now that we have vaccines and are rolling out additional sites We are confident that we will start to pick up speed very quickly, and at least for the month of July and into the first week of August, we're confident of our vaccine supply. Uh, Beyond that point, we are still in the process of uh, stabilizing the vaccine supply. Uh, We uh, uh, we are confident we will be able to get that uh, stabilized. Ideally, we would want to reach at least 65 to 70% of the target population, so now when we uh, register the 40, 50 to 59s, we will continue to register and push the drive for the 60 plus uh, registrations. So um, there's definitely improvement in what we are able to do. That's not to say we are not uh, d- trying very hard to, to up these targets and to move much more quickly. And we have a multi-pronged approach to, uh, to do that. The private sector are definitely distributing vaccines. They are definitely vaccinating. They have a large number of sites, and they we have meetings with them twice a week, and we appreciate the, the way in which we are working together very closely to make sure that we reach a bigger population. We also have agreements now with the private sector that they will vaccinate the uninsured population, so the challenges that were referred to by some of the members of uninsured people being turned away from private sites should be a thing of the past, and uh, it should be possible now for uninsured people to be vaccinated um, in private sites, just as well as uh, insured people will be vaccinated in public sites, especially in rural areas where there are no private sites at this stage, obviously because of the um, the economy of scales. So that we have stabilized that uh, relationship and it's going a, a lot more smoothly. Um, there was. I just wanted to emphasize the point about we mustn't let our guard down just because we are doing better with vaccination and it's improving all the time. And the point from um, the Honourable Jacobs about continuing to wear our masks and do our hand protection must not be forgotten as we move into a better vaccination period. So um, I think I must... Uh, yeah, maybe just a last word to talk about the Limpopa success story, which was referred to by the honourable chair. Um, it appears to be the difference appears to be the way in which they've mobilised the community and the community leaders, rather than any particular system. They actually go to the communities very proactively, and they have a, um, involved all of their MECs, all of their departments, extremely efficiently. So um, that is a lesson that we we must definitely. Uh, uh spread to all the provinces uh i think i'll stop at that point thank you
3: Jim. you want to come uh
1: thank you thank
15: you greetings to uh <coughs> our honorable uh, uh, colleagues from the portfolio committee. Uh, I'll, I'll just deal with a few issues. I think the team has dealt with quite a number. Just uh, one, um, the, the question from uh, Honorable uh, Imam Sheikh about the Delta and why we didn't stop uh, traveling. Uh, I think this, this matter has been dealt with. I know he, he's still not happy about the fact that we said we don't have any direct flights but you know, we are part of the global village. Um, when you look at um, the fact that unless you go back to uh, the total lockdown and total grounding of movement, as long as there's movement um, and people move from area to area, I mean, you know, you, you could, you know, go to the extra of, uh, on every airline checking where people have stopped over and so on. But the question will be whether, you know, what you will achieve through that will be worth the cost and and the effort when you have many other areas where you can get maximum impact. So so I think it was really a balancing act and, uh, you know, it would be a different matter if there was uh, plane loads of passengers coming from New Delhi, from Mumbai, coming directly here, then you would have some way of managing that. So um, <clears throat> I know that some honorable members still remain unhappy with that. Um, uh, honorable Van Staten about uh, just opening registration. I know Dr. Pile did deal with that showing the, the, uh, the rationale, the scientific rationale of age differentiation. Uh, clearly there is more to gain uh, because as yes he, he has shown in one of the slides basically the the um, wh- what has been proven is that your hypertension your diabetes uh, heart disease kidney disease and so on generally speaking you know those uh, non-communicable diseases which largely go with uh, you know um, which are also sh- shown uh, over, over, and over again, to be the risk factors in terms of serious illness, have a very close relationship, if not very direct, with the uh, age. Uh, I mean, the extent of age, and and therefore, uh, using that as a as, as a kind of a, a, a differentiation, you you you're able to also at the same time um, just beyond just. The risk, the, the risk factor of mortality and morbidity in terms of age, but also it captures also your other risk factors which also uh, get more and more with advancement of age. I think the, the role of private sector uh, the other the colleagues have already dealt with. Um, now, the question of Honorable Ismail about why houting. Uh, clearly, we all know that uh, houting is the you know center of our economy. In terms of you know business, uh, um, so in terms of uh, travel, uh, people who come you know uh, travel all over the world for various uh, 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 purposes, uh, whether it's business or leisure or, con- or or whatever. Yeah, it's it's largely into housing. And once there's a, as as, the, as it has been shown the increased t- transmissibility, once that arrives in housing. Uh, Houten is also the most dense of our provinces, so uh, uh, that's why the, the transmissibility once once the virus arrives in, in 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 the center of our our most cosmopolitan city. I mean the province. The question of AstraZeneca, whether um, uh, whether it. I mean, I, I maybe not. One should not go back to the argument of whether it's uh, limited efficacy. On, on the beta variant was correct, uh, to dispose of it, to sell it to other uh, countries. With the current information that it's, it's, it's quite efficacious when it comes to the Delta, uh, there will be clearly no need. I mean, it's already registered. Uh, it's, it's safety has already, the only question at the stage was not really in terms of safety. It was more of efficacy and efficacy specifically in terms of a particular variant, there will be no need to seek any further approval by the regulator. Um, and I think Dr. Crisp has dealt with the fact that, you know, I mean, we, we, the thing which, which determines how speedily we move uh, are basically two factors. is availability of vaccines, and also once the, once the vaccines are there, uh, the, the human resource uh, capacity, um, and and so as the stock, mainly is stock because we have, I mean, all the provinces that have already identified the sites and potential human resources, but to activate those, especially where we have to pull in additional uh, human resources, you can't do that until you know you've got stock. And as it's indicated, as the reliability of stock improves, you're able to activate more sites, bring in more people. And we can assure honorable members that as this Stabilizes. Hopefully, we can get stability also with the J and also with the dominance of the of the Delta. Uh, if we, I mean, uh, and I hope that we can still be able to access further stock from uh, AstraZeneca, from the Serum Institute. Uh, that will go a long way. While we're looking at the other sources like Sputnik, Sinovac, and so on. Um, yeah, I think I think maybe just having dealt with that. Uh, I think just to agree with the Honorable Jacobs that uh, it's important, Honorable Members, that we continue to emphasize that while vaccination has shown to to add to protection, um, it's not a panacea to dealing with this uh, pandemic. It has been shown not only in our country, where we are still early with the vaccination, but in countries which have been quite advanced with vaccination. As we learn now, you know that in countries like Australia, the number of cities which are under lockdown. Uh, um, there was also a report from um, from uh, uh, Professor Abdul Karim uh, about um, what is this uh, island, uh, colleagues will remind me, with less than 100,000 people um, were having vaccinated, but they have got to come back to lockdown uh, uh, because uh, of the fact that uh, uh, the, the delta is also you know, uh, descended on, on, on them. I'm sure colleagues will just remind me the name of
4: our- Deputy
15: Minister. Say Yeah, I mean, they have done the vaccination. They've got less than 100,000 population. They've done almost everybody, but they've got to take measures because notwithstanding the vaccination, uh, they've been descended with a severe, uh, you know, a, a wave, a third wave of, of the COVID. So it's not a panacea. I know that uh, uh, those who want to whip, uh, uh, with you know, uh, whip up the government uh, for everything, want to promise the population that you just have to vaccinate, then uh, it, then it's uhuru. I think it's a state. I mean, it, unfortunately, uh, in real life, that's not the fact, and uh, so we must always uh, uh, make sure that our population is aware of that. Uh, so the NPIs must always be uh, emphasized. Agreeing with the with the colleagues, uh, the, the rollout plan. I think it's it's you know, the uh, 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 honourable members may not be satisfied. I'm sure, uh, 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 honourable minister. When we come back, we can again maybe just to reiterate a full uh, 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 explanation of the plan and in terms of of where we are in terms of the execution. Um, I don't know if uh, I would. I mean, I'll just comment on this, but I would request Anban also Dr. Pillai just to come back, just on the facts. This issue that SAPRA is allegedly captured by Bill Gates and what, what I mean, um, that can't be any far from the truth because, um, you know, while there are a number of donors from time to time who contribute, especially SAPRA when SAPRA was being set up, when it had to catch up with the backlog, there are a number of funds which were sourced from various sources to help SAPRA to, uh, to, to, to clear the backlog. And they've gone a long way in terms of doing that. But this in, in no way, I mean, they stick very much to the principles of the science of any med- medication which comes through. And, and they work only on the question of whether this is compliant with the requirements. Um, maybe, uh, Minister, before uh, uh, you come in, if Anban could just, I think he was uh, uh, already in the department, he could just shed some more detailed lights in terms of where the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation contributed to some of the funding to help separate clear the backlog when it was started. Uh, Let me leave it there. Uh, I'm sure Anban, quickly, can you just uh, maybe lay some more facts on this matter? Thank you.
4: Minister, can I come in?
3: Yes, please proceed and then I'll, I'll close up for the first round of the questions.
4: Thank you, Minister. Um, I think, yes, uh, I think it's important just to understand the way uh, SAPRA operates. Um, SAPRA has a number of technical committees that when they receive an application for a medicine, each of these te- technical committees evaluate an aspect. So one committee will look at the chemical structure and its stability. Another will look at the way the tablet or the injection has been put together, whether the process, et cetera, is appropriate. Another group would look at how was it manufactured. Another group looks at when the drug gets into your bloodstream, how does it work or any other part of the body, um, et cetera. And these are all different groups. Each group needs to then come back and report on whether they are uh, supportive of registration or not. And then that process then gets pulled together to a point where there is then a a positive recommendation from all the committees. If one of the committees has a problem with a particular product, then SAPRA will not be able to register. So when we focus on individuals in an organization, particularly the way SAPRA operates, uh, they don't really have that kind of power to register a medicine or not register the medicine. It's a uh, largely process driven. Most of the regulators across the world are also, also structured that way. So no one person can uh, can make a decision about it. In terms of specifically the, the, uh, the funding for from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as a number of other donors, when SAPRA started up uh, moving from the MCC into SAPRA, there was a massive backlog of, of applications. And uh, as a result of that, they needed many more people to come on board, both from South Africa as well as from from uh, internationally retired evaluators to come and assist us to get through that backlog. Obviously, funds were required and um, the, these uh, uh, donor organizations uh, offered to, to make donations for that but the donations didn't go directly into into SAPRA's account. They were uh, uh, facilitated through a process with the National Treasury. Like many of us, uh, many of the departments receive donations from donor organizations, but the the funds come usually via Treasury in in many cases, or the support is in kind. So I think it's important to to bear that in mind in terms of the way uh, that was done. Um, If I can also just uh, um, share on the, J and J vaccine. I think the question on the thrombocytopenia, that's that's well known, and um, that uh, uh, adverse if, uh, event is reported in the in the in the literature as well as to healthcare workers and patients that receive it are counselled about it and advised if they are if they are prone to this, they should not be taking the vaccine, and doctors would advise patients who are at risk not to do so as well. In terms of the myocarditis, similar situation. Uh, There is very small numbers in terms of this. Uh, We can certainly, I think many members asked for more information about what is the overall uh, adverse events relating to each of the vaccines. I think we can probably provide that. I think uh, the Honorable Imam Sheikh uh, had a number of questions, Minister, that I think he posed uh, to you in his letter. And uh, a, a lot of it is statistics. So I think we need to just get much of that, like you know, the ivermectin report, et cetera, which I think we can we promise to get and and we can provide. Thank you, Minister, I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Dr.
3: Pley. I think just coming on the issue of surprise one, And also because Honorable Sheikh Imam made reference to conflict of interest of individuals. And specifically because publicly there's been an issue that um, we have looked at the matter, I've looked at the matter. Dr. Sri's partner was in, in a partner previously, but the BE has since lapsed, and she or neither he are involved with. Has been well, you no know, JNGA, any products. So I think that was checked. Um, we've, I've had a conversation with Dr. Reese when the matter was. And maybe I can say, Honorable Members, one of the things that as parliamentarians and, and as members of parliament, that we must be able to act within principle is to protect institutions within this country, not for individuals to be intimidated, because we'll battle later to find professionals who are willing to serve, because when we fight, we personalize matters, we attack West, it was women who have been attacked and literally threatened that people will go and do a sit-in in their homes. I do really think that um, it's something that we should, as even I hope members of parliament would stand as lawmakers who protect institutions within our country of democracy, and institutions that are supposed to support us to enhance our work, but also standing against, you know, we we talk about gender-based violence in this country being one of the pandemics that we are dealing with, and you have people who can stand and attack women because of the responsibility they have taken in this country to lead. So I do think that for me, it's important to clarify this and really say that I hope members will stand with us and really say that what has happened against Sapra's leadership is uncalled for. That's the first thing. Secondly, uh, the letter, honorable member, we will respond to a letter, but remember, in terms of the rules of parliament, uh, it's questions that have a deadline um, that we have to an obligation in terms of responding. We'll respond to a letter, but we can't put a timeframe because it's not a tool that is used, because it's not a committee letter, it's an individual member's letter that we have to respond to. So within the rules, we will respond in the timeframes that are allocated within, and Point within we're able to get the numbers and the names of the people that are being able to do. Then coming to the issue of Honorable, um, um, I think others have been responded, Honorable Fernstein Metas has been responded, Honorable um Mattes has been responded. Um, and as we said, we'll continue the issues of travel as well. Uh, Honorable DM has responded um, because the issue of um, travel, uh, we operate within a global community and there are practical steps that can be done. But I understand that Minister Mkize, has even responded to this issue honorable member previously in the committee, as you are saying that you're asking questions and we answer them, but it doesn't mean honorable members when you ask questions and we answer them and it's not within your your satisfactory, they are not answered. We answer questions within the context of how we do our work and how we operate as as members of the executive. Now, the issue in terms of research hesitancy There's been quite a number of research that has been done. I've been quoting two specifically. That has been done, one by um, UJ, uh, linked with um, HSRC, and then another one under Saki Che, that is funded by Department of Science and Higher Education Science and Innovation um, in Soweto, where there are multiple issues. One, correctly, around the issue of community leaders. Obviously, you say in this context they've been making a reference of traditional leaders, um, traditional healers. And it could be deduced out of the research that because some of these leaders in the community, if they do not give the indication of safety or even comfort with the vaccine, it's likely to influence those that believe in them and those that follow them. So that is the issue. Then the other issue it was around the distance, the issues of where people are located, to travel to the vaccine. That's why part of the issues is around how do we respond and the issue around uh, the good story about Limpopo, bringing the vaccine to the people. Because one of the things that is found is around the issue of people who are not able to go where the vaccine is because of uh, being 60 plus of that population and the issue of the cost that is related. It's not all of them, but again, the other issue when you look at it, it's around the, the, for example, the issue of registration, in terms of what Dr. Chriswell has answered, so we're looking at all those things. That's why there will be a multiple um, response area in terms of intervention from a system point of view, from what we would now call coordinated vaccine that needs to be arranged by the leader so that we can be able to get a max vaccination. I think we'll continue to do the work around the issue of acquiring moral vaccine. Uh, we currently do not have what we could be able to say, this is what is, um, would comfort those who believe in terms of religious uh, beliefs that they can not take this vaccine, but we continue to advocate for this vaccine to help them. The issue of impact of communication, I think the other issue, which would be around honesty and transparency. So we are required to, to be transparent in our reporting, to be honest in what we are doing and accountable. And I do hear what honorable member is saying in terms of sometimes it puts a lot of pressure on individuals and therefore they end up being depressed and all those things I see, the number of people dying. But in terms of statistics, you've got to be accurate, you've got to report openly, you've got to be transparent in the reporting. But I think one of the things that we always emphasize is around support uh, social economy, um, sorry, uh, taking care of the social issues in terms of, that's why some of the people who talk about pastoral care, when you meet with the leaders of of the churches we talk about that, but you talk as well from the traditional leaders providing support and within communities, but also ourselves as members of parliament, we remain having responsibility in ensuring that we provide that. I think um, quite a number of them have been responded to as well. Uh, The issues around um, what honorable Tembegwayo, what honorable, Minyai has raised. Indeed, the, President Ramaphosa continues to be the champion about global access to vaccine and as well making sure that vaccine is equitable. You'd understand in various platforms that is taken, Honorable Minyai, that he's been vocal about this, to say we need to ensure that it's not only those who have, i, I going to get access to vaccine, but everybody from issues of Developing developed countries and developing countries from individuals who are coming from, um, you know, based on the inequalities that we have, we must make sure that we roll out the vaccine to even the most remote areas and the rural areas and the most poor and the vulnerable. So that's what is been advocated by our, com- our government to ensure that we do continue to ensure that we are able to do what we are expected to. I think, chair, I've been able to close off all the. Um, issues that were outstanding from the reports, and we can take further more questions if they still exist. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. Honorable members, uh, thank you very much, Minister. There are four members that I've recognized and I've really uh, engaged them on a chat group that will take one question per member, a follow up, because we have been here with our staff members from nine o'clock in meetings. And therefore we may not extend it too long beyond this seven o'clock. So the people that I've recognized and their, their names are in the chat group is Honorable Fanstaden, one question. Honorable Sukers, one question. Honorable Wilson, one question. Honorable Sheikh Imam, one follow-up. Those are the ones that I've recognized. I've asked actually Honorable Sukars who also came in and said, look, please, can you follow up by writing it down so that you can release our staff members and all of us who have been in this meeting.
7: In that order, Honourable Members, one to four. Thank you, Chairperson, um, for the second chance. I still do not hear what uh, um, measures will be put in place to help our disabled people in South Africa to be to get vaccinated faster um, for those who do want that. And I still do not hear measures sp- uh, what is going to happen to fast track the vaccinations throughout our population. And I, I would gladly would like to hear from the Honorable Minister by what time and date will South Africa be completely vaccinated? Because if you're going on on this pace, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it's going to take us a very, very long time. Thank you, uh, to, uh, uh, Chairperson. Okay, next
12: um, Honorable Chair, thank you so much. I won't be long. I just want to say thank you to the Minister for that direct response um, on the ethical vaccines. It is appreciated and I, we really trust that that will be um, part of the rollout um, at the soonest um, um, possible time. Now, Chairperson, I need to say this. We are unhappy. Unhappy is not the word. It is unacceptable is the word in response to what the Deputy Minister has said. The, um, pre- the Minister Kize in May said that they are, ex- they are urgently looking at the ports of entry, nothing was done, it's a note that must be made by the committee. So the escalation in cases is directly to do with how we've managed the ports of entry and the ex- and how the Indian variant has escalated because of the failure of us managing the processes. The practical issues chair is very important that was raised by um, the physician in our committee. Um, The issue around the practical steps of non-pharmaceutical measures and comprehensive care, we need practical examples chair because we are already seeing the signs in my constituency of a rerun of what we saw in January with um, the health services being under pressure and that we don't have uh, emergency services that are responding timely to people who are in need of oxygen. So the, the issues that were raised by um, um, Dr. Ken, we need those practical answers to be given to us. And although I appreciate the fact that the uh, D- Department of Health does um, academically respond, we cannot afford academics. We need the practical output of what is being done. The status of the field hospitals, where that is at in all the provinces, we need to know what is being done in terms of augmentation to ensure comprehensive care. Those are my um, 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 notes, Chair, that I just want to bring to the attention. And again, thank you, Minister. I am relieved that you have acknowledged at least, at the very least, the need for the uh, ethical vaccine. Thank you.
1: Honorable Wilson. Oh, not there, or muted.
0: Honourable Sheikh Imam.
6: Thank you very much, Chairperson. Chair, allow me to express my disappointment. So many questions that I have posed, and just the Department attempted to respond to two questions. But let me also add my extreme disappointment at the response of the Deputy Minister. I'm actually shocked at his response. Whether it was worth the cost and the exercise in putting restrictions. Yes, it is, Deputy Minister. It's not your people, it's our people that are dying. If you put the measures in, our people you could have saved some life. We said stop the travel, Indian travelers coming into the country. But you are saying you have to do an exercise to see if it's worth the cost. I'm actually very disappointed at your response. Minister, acting minister, I've said to you about Dr. Shankara Chetty. I don't know why your department believes that you're alone for yourself person who's recognized worldwide and I've spoken to many doctors in the last week or two who have indicated they are all using a similar treatment and it is working why mm-hmm. are we not considering mm-hmm. these things but just talking about evidence-based when you talk about I've given you evidence based on health on the world health organization which has stopped the rollout of some of this vaccine when it suits your department you'll accept it evidence when it does not suit you on why have you still not contacted this doctor which might go and save many lives in this country Thank you,
0: Honourable. That was the other hand I recognised. Okay, then we're going giving back to the minister and his department.
3: Thank you very much, Chair. I think let me start with the issue of travel. Perhaps maybe there's a misunderstanding of what the DMC and because I've been extensively involved as well. When you look at issues of travel, um, in terms of traveling, what we have as a country, when we get in and what we have put in place, when we get traveling, we don't do what only what we are doing. So similar within the health space, the aviation space will have international protocols, the travel and tourism will have international protocols and it will have guidelines on how countries respond in terms of travel, and in terms of how things are done. So based on that, that's what government would have looked at holistically, to say from this side in terms of what has been said by UNWTO, by what has been said by global aviation industry in terms of traveling and how restrictions are done. The current issue is that we should not close international borders because they impact negatively as well on the pandemic. But again, honorable members, let's remind you, the country has adopted a risk-adjusted strategy. And in that process, we said, the importance of balancing lives and livelihoods. So we save lives, but we also save livelihoods. So in the process of that with travel, when the matter of Delta was discovered for uh, India, part of what as government we have put in place is that all travelers that arrive in the country within 72 hours, you need to have done a test test and produce your negative test results. This is what is being done. If you arrive in the country, and then you have been screened by Port Health, and then you are found to have symptoms in the process, then you are isolated, you are requested to go into a quarantine of not less than 10 days. So to say that as a country we have been reckless, we have not put mechanisms and measures in place to protect South Africans is not correct, is not true. Unless if honorable members have missed that part of the directions or of the regulations, because it's very clear. Anyone who arrives, whether even from countries, but we think that they are safe, they have been received really you know, across, whether it's Europe, whether it's where, everybody who arrives in this country requires, or is requested to produce those tests. That is a mechanism to provide with for us to test to protect us. We as South Africa, we were the first to complain and raise concerns when everybody started calling beta a South African variant. We felt that we have been isolated. We felt that we have been ostracized in the midst of a pandemic. So you can not suffer twice, suffer from a pandemic and suffer for, from discrimination. And we can't be the ones to also go and say we must actually make other nations to suffer twice, but we are not saying we should not protect our country. So there is that clear indication of protocols and mechanisms that have been put in place, including within the community in terms of what we are doing. So I wanted to clear that. I think there's a misunderstanding of what the DMS said, and I think there's misunderstanding of what government has done in terms of protecting South Africans and we continue to do that. So the other issue the acting minister
6: is misleading us. Yes, Agreed, the, shepherd, the minister Agreed. is misleading us. Mm. Many countries has put putting restriction.
0: So Honourable I would say Imam nobody Sheikh, put putting restriction. Honorable Imam Sheikh, will Honourable you, Honourable will you will not do that. Or You will not do that when the minister is on the platform. If you are not happy with it. the question, if you know if you are not happy with the answer, you know how to do it. You know how- He's
11: messing doing. up a good meeting. It's messing up a good meeting.
0: Continue, Minister.
3: Honorable uh, Imam Sheikh, we can have the discussion. Fortunately, one participates in global platforms that deals with these matters. So we can have a conversation and we can take you through how the decisions in countries are taken and what is being done so that we can be informed, all of us. So it's not out of a point of being informed. I'm speaking quite from an experience. I sit on the Sustainable Tourism on the World Economic Forum. We deal with these matters quite regularly. And we are able to evaluate in terms of countries, what they are doing in terms of travel. And we can give you clear indication of why certain countries will have taken a particular decision and all that, so that you can understand why South Africa will take a particular stance in not taking that what you are saying we should have done just to indicate in terms of our tracking of the, of the vaccine rollout. honourable members, one is not going to be here and say, we are not concerned about how we've fed with a 60 plus population. I think we've been open about it, to say we would have loved to have finished the population by today, which is 60 plus. And out of that, now we had to go back and look at what has cost us not to reach this target. So part of what we are doing, hence we are looking at multiple approaches in terms of implementation of our vaccine program. Not only opening for the age groups, but also dealing with other sectors to be able to say, while you are dealing with the population, for example, when we look at the 50 plus, you're going to see it's almost four million population. But again, you're going to see that we're opening for the security cluster because these are the people that must help us in doing the work and managing the pandemic. So that work is done. You want to also keep the economy going. That's why you must vaccinate within the active economy so that when people move to their houses, go to the retail, we are not exposing itself or either in terms of the taxes, in terms of the economy, uh, what we call productive sectors of the economy. So that's what we are doing as well. So the multiple facet approach that we are taking is one of the things that we are ramping up and fast-tracking the implementation of our vaccine rollout program. We'll continue to do that, we'll continue to evaluate. And I think that's what I said last time to say, when we look at our of of our vaccine program, there will continue to be improvements because we might have said, this is how we are going to. I think what is important for us is to be able to come back check where we have changed to say honorable members, this is what we have initially planned to say, this is the rollout we go. We have changed on the following decision. And these are the reasons why it has been changed. One of the issues that keeps on coming up was the issue around that initially we said comorbidity. So the understanding of the population was that anyone with whatever age who has a comorbidity will be vaccinated quickly with a 60 plus. But later we only open for 60 plus. Now in clarifying this, when the matter was looked in terms of practical implementation, it was found that, how do you prove that all of us have comorbidities? So the difficulty, and then the category of 60 plus was seen as a category that is more of population that have comorbidities and the vulnerable, as Dr. DeVey has presented. So that's how the decision was taken. So we'll go back as well, honorable fans then, to really look in the issues around disability. Because part of what we must do is that when we take a decision to say, this is how we are rolling out, Let's look at the practical implementation of the process. I know with many disabilities, we have a certificate or a medical report. But there are certain disabilities that would not. So we'll have to look into that, how do we balance that, and maybe perhaps respond when we come in the next two weeks to say, we've looked at this. This is what we think is practical about implementation. So it's very important for us to be able to be transparent in how we do. And that's why I'm saying perhaps maybe the weakness might be as we come would not say this is what last time we said and this is what we have reviewed. Because every week we review, we go to the IMC and then the IMC looks at what we have been able to achieve, where there are bottlenecks, then also recommends. And the technical teams as well looks at how we are rolling out, how do we do in terms of implementation. So we're looking at ramping up as well the sites to be able to have more sites in terms of vaccine run out. And that's where we can talk about success stories and learning out of success stories. So when tomorrow we come back and say, this is how we have changed it, Will be able to account to say this is what we have done. So that's the issue. Now, um, practical steps on non pharmaceutical, the issue of field hospitals, honorable members. What we look at, obviously, one, one had to look in, in terms of where the field hospitals and you'd understand. Part of the issue was that many, for example, let's take Houdin. Houdin, when we engaged, we asked about NASREC and they say, no, look. When we had Nazareth, we never even had full capacity in terms of Nazareth. So when you looked versus the cost and the occupancy, it didn't make sense. But what Howden had done over time during the um, first wave and second wave was to add capacity in terms of beds in the hospitals. So many of the provinces would have done that as they disseminate or as they uh, do away with the filled hospitals, you'd find within the hospitals themselves, there's additional capacity that has been brought. For example, in Houten, we have about 1,400 additional beds. What would have affected Houten more is because of the absence of Charlotte McLean with, with the fire um, that no one could have anticipated. But when you look at the alternative technology buildings that have been brought, one in Jubilee, the second one in um, that we call Anglo Shanti, the third one in terms of bronchial and the other one in bar. Those when you check in terms of capacity, then you see that the beds add in terms of what we need. Currently, when we evaluate, for example, in we do not have those beds fully 100% capacity. But another thing that we had to do in intervention is we look at what is happening and managing the pandemic, because sometimes it looks like we do not. There's a team that consistently look at what is happening, based on the numbers and do interventions per province. Now, when you look at how where there's pressure is the private sector. Now I've been daily, I'm in contact with the, the Department of Health in housing. We held a meeting between the national the ministerial advisory committee together with the advisory committee of the premium to look at whether we are missing each other in interventions to close the gap so that we can make sure that we're on the same page because some of the people who sit in the neck are clinicians who have practical experience and what they're literally on the ground. And part of what we found is that the bed capacity is there. There are two areas where there's strain, which is the ICU and also in terms of the emergency area. Now, we do not have shortages of oxygen. That capacity is there. In terms of the ICU as well, it's around the turnaround time. And we looked at interventions to say, how do we respond to it? The other issue that we had picked up was around the turnaround time of sourcing of human capital because To activate some of the existing beds, you need to have the human capital to be able to activate them. And that work, that's why the president, when he announced, he was able to say to us, solidarity has brought in money to be able to recruit the nurses to be able to assist us within Kau'i. We are monitoring other provinces. We don't think where we are, we are in trouble. Remember as well, the the department has been in this committee to come and say, we have developed an action plan in response to a search together with WHO. And once we have a search, that's what gets activated. So all the provinces were given an indication to activate and get everything ready. And there there is a reporting mechanism that continuously monitor what is happening in terms of beds across the country, in terms of oxygen across the country supply, in terms of ICU and all that. In Houtim, for example, again, there's been a team that has been established jointly to look at sourcing when a patient goes to private sector, how do we transfer that patient into public sector? So that where there is gaps in terms of non-availability of a bed and the other side has a ability really bed, there is smooth transition. The evidence can know where to take the, the patient, not to go to a hospital that is full. So work is being done, honorable members, not that we are not listening, not that nothing is being done, Consistently, every day, work is being done to ensure that we respond to the pandemic. And we do believe that as we emphasize what needs to be done by the department, we need to emphasize again the responsibility of citizens to be able to assist us to manage the pandemic. Again, all the gatherings have been stopped. No one should be encouraging gatherings, especially political parties, including all where we all belong, to not encourage you must see leaders speaking out because it's not only the responsibility of the department and the responsibility of health workers to save lives, it's responsibility of all of us. Thank you very much, Chair. Uh,
0: honorable members, we would like to put this uh, to a close after the minister's uh, address. Uh, we, you know, honorable members, if there are questions that you have not been satisfied in getting responses you know you follow the same process that we do too in Parliament, so it's not different here too. Uh, we will probably meet the Minister in the next fortnight with an update, but Honourable Minister, we want to appreciate the, the continued invitations that uh, the parliamentalizing Officer, Mr. Hartler, sends to us. Just want to remind him to send it on time, in case we are going to be appearing in other platforms addressing and uh, addressing the nation or wherever we are meeting, maybe the scientists. We appreciate that. Because it is an information that we also appreciate uh, to get to us. Uh, uh, honorable members, I wish we could have uh, extended this. I know you are still wanting to ask, but uh, we have to prefer to some of our staff members also who have been here since this morning and to some of us who started the meeting at nine o'clock. Uh, thank you very much. We would like to bring this meeting to a close. Thanks. Thank you very much, Chair.
1: Thank
0: you, Thank, you,
9: thank chair. You very
1: Thank oh, you, go well. Thank you.
9: Please, thank next you, time. Please, thank, thank you,
0: chair, for, you, you, for your hard working. Thank you very much. Thank
12: you, thank you, thank you, minister.
1: Good night, to everyone. Thank you.